Okay, here we go. Good evening, ladies and gentlemen, and welcome to another episode of The Package Tourist, hosted by yours truly, The Package Tourist and the Magical Mystery Tour Call Life, Matthew DiBiaz. Tonight's guest is author, hockey, and pro wrestling historian Greg Oliver. Greg lives in Toronto, Canada, and has written 19 books with more to come since 2003. He has co-authored five books in the Pro Wrestling Hall of Fame Quintet and has written many books on pro hockey. Tonight, we will be discussing his two upcoming releases which he co-authored with their subjects. The Woman Who Would Be King, The Medusa Story, a bio on female pro wrestler Deborah Medusa Michelli, and Gibby, Tales of a Baseball Lifer, a bio on former Toronto Blue Jays manager John Gibbons. Greg, welcome to the show. It's an honor and privilege to have you here. I like to start off by yep, uh, Greg. I like to start off by asking you um, about Medusa Michelli. Did she reach out to you, or did you reach out to her to write her bio, co-write her bio? Uh, actually, in both cases, it was the same intermediary. There was a guy named John Arezzi, okay. and I worked on his book, and it was about his life in baseball, wrestling, and country music. And so he's always been a connector in his life, um, certainly in his business dealings, and. He's the one that suggested Medusa call me, and Gibby had already done the forward for his book, so I already knew Gibby a tiny bit, and when you know the pandemic hit and there was nothing to do, uh, Gibby got in touch there. But the Medusa book came first, for sure, and it was through John Arism. Is it accurate to say that Medusa Michelli was the prototype of today's female wrestler who not only is a wrestler, but also is a combination sex symbol as well? Do you believe she was the prototype for today's wrestling woman? Well, let me think. If I'm a 17-year-old boy who really remembers Medusa, uh, yes, compared to the women of the time. There yeah. was Wendy Richter, and then it was a big drop down from there. And that's not a knock on anybody. It was the way they dressed. It was the way they carried themselves. It was the way they were portrayed on TV. And then came Medusa, who really did kick down some doors and, and brought an element of a little bit more showmanship and certainly showed leg and showed shoulder. And it's like, oh, my God, this is a little bit more exciting than uh, seeing the fabulous Mula, who was about 108 years old at the time. So it was a good start. And, uh, yeah, there were times where I, I had to be that 17-year-old boy. Oh, my God, Medusa's calling me. This is so bizarre. Yeah. Now tell us, where was Medusa born and raised, and how did she get involved in pro wrestling? I, it's, it's a funny story because just in the sense that always she'd been portrayed as coming from Milan, Italy, which was all, you know, typical wrestling bump and not true at all. Uh, so she's just a Minneapolis girl, mm. got involved in wrestling because she met a guy and he said you'd be great in, in the entertainment business. She thought that would be in, being a stuntman. But, in fact, he introduced her to Eddie Sharkey, who trained local wrestlers and to train, you know, the Road Warriors and uh, Rick Rude, Barry Darsaw, who was uh, Demolition Smash, all these different people. And so he trained her, and that's how she broke into the business. Please tell our younger listeners, what time period did she begin her wrestling career? Give us a, a decade. What time period did she commence her career? Oh, absolutely, yeah. It's like 1987, <sighs> 1988 is when she's um, making it on... The AWA had a spot on ESPN at the time, so that's where most people got to know Medusa for sure. Okay, um, what in your opinion, based on dealing with her, what do you believe set her apart from other female wrestlers? Oh, she had balls the size of cantaloupes. I don't know. How do you describe it? it she's 
She's a force of nature. Mm-hmm. Um, she didn't take no for an answer, but I think what really set her apart was her daringness to go to Japan and learn for three years. And she came back to the U.S. with a whole different outlook on what pro wrestling could be. And she never really got to showcase that until WWF when they brought in Bull Nakano. But that idea that she took that daring leap and, and really went out there and learned the trade, uh, I think is really what set her apart from her colleagues at the time. And it's not to mean that the colleagues didn't go to Japan, because they all did, but they would go on a tour, whereas Medusa went and lived there for basically two to three years. Okay, uh, there's always character development uh, with a pro wrestler. Was she, was she a heel? Was she more heroin? Uh, was she a, you know, a good woman, or was she a heel? Um... Well, she was a pretty blonde, so it was pretty mm. hard to be a villain, certainly initially. Uh, she got better at it through time. Certainly um, when she made it to WCW in um, 1990, that's when you sort of learned she became a villain. She was part of the Dangerous Alliance with Polly Dangerously, who we all know now is Paul Heyman. So she learned to be a villain then. But generally, uh, if you looked at her whole career, it was sort of you know, a, a bit more baby-facey than, than heel in, in wrestling vernacular. But, but again, it's, she's an attractive blonde. It's hard not to be uh, somebody that everybody admired. Well, she had no problem embracing the sex symbol aspect of it? She'd had no trouble with that at all? Oh, God, no. No, in, in fact, she, she pushed the, the envelope in a lot of ways and tried to ruffle feathers, and that probably describes her entire life more than anything, right? That she just... Uh, it was not ever afraid to ruffle feathers and really change the norm. That that describes Medusa to a T. In terms of ruffling feathers, I mean, uh, you know, with her character or with dealing with pro wrestling bigwigs like Vince McMahon or whoever the bigwig she was dealing with. Uh, can you expand on that, Greg? Yeah, no, it's it's certainly everything. I mean, by and large, wrestling wrestling women at the time were told to you know do what they were told. And just go out there and, and do the little act. And they were a sideshow. They were never meant to be a featured performer. They were just, you know, a small part of the circus act. Whereas Medusa really pushed to try to make them a lot more featured. And, and her and Bull Nakano and WWF would be headlining shows. Uh, in part because maybe sometimes the stars, like the Ultimate Warrior, had to get to the next town. Mm. But that kind of idea that they were allowed to go out there, and, and often the guys, and, and in, in the book, Medusa talks about how Scott Hall used to tell her that, you know, we don't want to follow you, Deuce. We want to, you know, because it's too hard to follow. Though Men can't keep up with the action they were putting out there. And, and nowadays, you look at the wrestling of the women, when they're allowed to the time, uh, it's not any different than the men. It's just, it's just people wrestling the same way. And I think Medusa and Bull certainly set the bar really high, and that's what we're seeing today. If I recall, because I was kind of a pro wrestling buff in the late 80s and all that, I seem to remember certain magazines, like uh, Wrestling Illustrated, talking about Medusa was good enough, she could have taken on a man or something like that in terms of her skill sets. Do you recall it that same way, the early uh, wrestling magazine uh, pre- publicity and press at the time when she hit the scene? Do you recall that? Well, it's or? a little tricky for guys like you and I that are you know, actually in the journalism industry and, you know, you read the hockey news and all these legitimate publications. Well, the wrestling publications were not legitimate. Okay. So they, they would make up stuff. Okay. I mean, they talked about her being an excellent swimmer and a volleyball player and all these things. They just made up for whatever reason. So anything in any of the wrestling magazines, you have to take with a grain of salt. doesn't mean mm. that some of them weren't more legitimate than others. Okay. 
But that, that's the best way to describe it. It's like you can't bank on it the way you could reading it in the hockey news. What were the roughest moments in her career? I mean, did she really encounter any major crises, you know, that she had to deal with? Uh, can you tell us on that? Oh, God, there's so many things that she just things never went right for her, right? She tried to – a big part of the book is, is her attempts to get pregnant and how mm. the industry itself made that very difficult, right? You never got time off. You were all expected to perform and go across the world. So that never happened for her, certainly as a wrestler and even later in Monster Trucks. So there's that aspect of things. There's budding with the heads that were running things about portraying women legitimately instead of just goofily. Like she was involved with like um, a, like a barbecue uh, barbecue sauce match, right? Like where the, the loser has to have barbecue sauce poured on them. Like things like that is just so humiliating to anybody. But it was very common for women to be thrown in those kind of things or the the bra and patty, panties kind of matches yeah. and dressing provocatively. She was always felt she was an athlete and she always wanted to be portrayed as much. And that's why I think the monster truck calling was perfect for her, even though it's a different kind of athletic endeavor for sure, driving a monster truck. Did she have any uh, rivalries? I know that it's not fake wrestling rivalries, you know, characterized within storylines, but a real rivalry like, you know, on other female wrestlers or female characters in her the pro wrestling world. It's kind of funny because there were so few women wrestlers that they sort of all had to get along because they would eventually run into each other here or there. It doesn't mean you didn't have to pay your dues. And she talked a little bit about that in the book about like a Sherry Martell was a, uh, you know, a veteran. And when she had to wrestle her, there were all these challenges and, and expectations and unwritten rules where she had to really step it up and, and become more... I don't know, like go to that next level, right? It's that challenge, right? If mm -hmm. all of a sudden you're playing with Marc Messier, you're, there's a different level of expectation than if you're playing in the, AH, in the AHL, right? Yeah. So it's that kind of idea. I think that definitely happened a few times. And then later in life, she's the one mentoring, whether it's a Molly Holly or a, a Stacey Keebler or a Tori Wilson or whoever it may be. She found herself in that similar role. And even today, she works for the NWA behind the scenes, uh, helping script matches and, and being an agent. Uh, in fact, she's found a good calling that way, and it really does seem to suit her and her personality. What year did she transition from wrestling to Monster Truck? It's a little complicated to say in the sense that her contract hadn't expired with WCW. However, not WCW also had to deal with Monster Jam to run its own you know, WCW trucks. So there was a little bit of overlap, but in 1999, she did her first ride. And by two, early 2000, she was on her own driving a monster truck. Mm. Okay, why, why the transition to monster truck? Uh, why? Because she's insane. I, I don't know how else to describe it. I mean, it's, she needed the challenge. She needed something different to do. She's a thrill seeker. Um, she loves to be challenged and, and do interesting things. Mike Weber was the guy who had been a PR guy for WWF and then WCW, who suggested to her... Because uh, he worked at the time for the people that ran Monster Jam. He said, why don't you come try this, Deuce? And she did. She loved it. And it became her the next 19 years. And, and but that's what often people forget. is like She actually did pro wrestling less time than she did Monster Trucks. She was a Monster Truck driver for 19 years. It's just you're not in front of the public every day the way you were with pro wrestling. Now, you talked earlier difficulties in having a baby. Did she ever finally have a child? 
No, and that's oh. that's a, definitely one of the heartbreaking parts of the entire story. And it was as a guy, it was kind of tough to write that kind of thing. Um, and we wrestled, no pun intended, about how to write about that. And we balanced it off a little bit with her love of pets. She raised wolves. She loves her dog. She had a parrot. Uh, well, uh, yeah, some sort of parrot. And all yeah. these kind of things. So we try to balance off the fun stories with the heartbreaking yeah. stories of, of miscarriages, uh, things that go wrong with uh, just female pregnancy things. And then even two adoption stories that go wrong. But we only really told one because they're interlinked. So it, it's, yeah, it, as a guy, I feel very privileged to be able to tell her story, but I can't say it was easy for me to do because a lot of times I found myself really brokenhearted over it all and, and yeah. wished that life could have turned out differently for her. Um, but she's not somebody who looks in the rear view mirror a lot either. Um, so there was a, a real challenge for her looking back like that, right? She's definitely a forward thinker. What am I going to do next? Who am I, whose ass am I going to kick next? All that kind of thing. So she never adopted a kid then, eh? No, that never oh, worked out either. She has two stepkids through her um, current husband, Alan, but they're both grown adults, so it's a different kind of situation. So you talk about she's doing age and working, working with uh, NWA. Is that exactly what she's doing right here and now? Uh, what she does every day of her life is hustle. Mm. So whether it's selling something um, on her Medusa.com website, whether it's uh, trying to sell a book now, whether it's going to the NWA and selling her name, whether it's showing up in WWF as a Lunder Blaze on NXT or wherever it may be, uh, whether it's going to a convention, whether it's uh, promoting some product that, that she's a spokesperson for. She's, she's a hustler through and through. Uh, I admire her drive. Uh, her body, you know, is you know, 65 years old. It's, it's gone through a lot and she yeah. keeps going and going and going. And that's to her eternal credit. But she's not broke or starving, correct? No, no. And in fact, um, it, it's a big, like Alan's is a big part of her story that he worked in the military for 30 years and, and that they came together and, and found this life together. is it, It's part of her redemption part. And, and they're a great match. I've been down there, hung out with them. I've hung out with them in Vegas as well. Uh, they're a great couple. And, you know, from that perspective, you know, there's a happiness. There's, there's the joy at the end of the rainbow. Okay, Greg, let us now talk about your work with John Gibbons, former Major League Baseball manager John Gibbons. Um, where, was he, where was he born and raised? It's a crazy, like, so his dad worked in the military. In fact, we were just talking about Alan uh, Medusa's husband, uh, who was in the military and had served around the world. Uh, Gibby's dad had worked for the Air Force, uh, so technically he was born in Montana, but he really grew up, like his parents are from Boston, hmm. so that's sort of what he considers his home. Um, but he's lived in many different places, including Puerto Rico. He lived up in Newfoundland and Labrador, which is where he had his first baseball swings and Little League. Um, they ended up settling down in Houston and then San Antonio. And that's why he's such a weird-ass kind of guy in the hmm. sense that, you know, he's this... Boston raised or Boston kid and his mom is so Boston. It was so so much fun to hang out with his mom Sally, but she's from Boston. He's from Boston. Yet he's Texan through and through. And then he spent ten years in Canada. So yeah, <laughs> he's definitely an interesting cat. Okay, uh, how much? How extensive was his Major League Baseball uh, playing career experience? It was not. I, mm. That's part of the Ooh. fun part of a book like this, right? Like he he was. Up until, what was it, 83, 84, 85, 86, like he played 
like a handful of games for the Mets. And Mooney was a Triple A guy, uh, and of course, then the Mets traded for Gary Carter, and Gibby was a catcher, and he found himself stuck behind probably the greatest catcher of his era. Yeah. And so, what are you going to do? It doesn't mean he didn't learn a lot because he did, and he and he praises Gary for sure, Camera Carter, as we call him in the book. Um, like he's praised throughout the book, yeah. but it also meant he would never get up there to that next level. And that's unfortunate. He talked about how he actually wished he'd been traded to the Expos uh, in the Gary Carter trade, but that didn't happen. Uh, and then Gibby had a lot of injury issues and just never got a chance to make it. But he was a part of that 86 Mets team that won the World Series, but he was a backup catcher, like the bullpen catcher, sorry, okay. not even backup catcher. So he was the uh-huh. bullpen catcher, so not on the active roster. But he was there in the bullpen to catch all the different guys, whether it's Sid Fernandez or... Dwight Gooden or whoever he was helping to, to warm up so they could go on their way. He had a World Series ring, sold it along the way. Ooh. But he's definitely he's definitely a part of all those guys' lives, and, and you know he's included in those reunions. Part, you know, you're a part of the team regardless, right? Yeah. It, now, of course, that 86 Mets team, were, they were wild, absolutely wild. What, uh, when you were doing the book with John Jim Gibbons, what was your favorite 1986 Mets story that he t- shared with you? Well, it's, a lot of them come actually before that in the sense that he got to know guys like um, uh, Nails, Lenny Dykstra, when you know they were in the real minor leagues, the low-level guy. And that's when they really come in and they start to develop personalities, right? I mean, the first time he meets Dwight Gooden, the first, you know, rooming with Daryl Strawberry in the instructional league. Um, so all those sort of things lead up to the 86 team. And though he's not there every day, he's certainly part of the team. He was on those crazy flights and all those kind of things, but he was very much a Christian guy throughout it all. Hmm. It doesn't mean he didn't have fun, but it doesn't mean he was not a guy on the back of the bus or the back of the plane um, leading the drinking parties. He was was there, but not, not the insane guy for sure. At least not that he told me. Now, he became a manager. Did he discuss with you who was probably influential in terms you know, managers are always influenced by someone, you know, whom they played for. Who do you think had, had a great impact that influenced his own personal managerial style, in your opinion? Well, there, there's Davey Johnson, right, mm, yeah. uh, who definitely had a, a, a big part of it. He believed in Gibby, mm. and later he became, you know, a manager of his own and, and those kind of things. He really saw that. Um, there's a couple other managers along the way that, that – really made a big difference to him. And, and, but that's the nature of learning any trade, and, and baseball managing especially, is uh, you just kept getting better. You, you learn lessons from somebody else, from this guy. It's like, I didn't like the way this guy handled me. But the, probably the main guy is Chuck Hiller, who had, of course, mm-hmm. been with the San Francisco 49ers and that uh, 62 uh, team. Giants, All those the Giants. Guys. Sorry, the Giants, yeah. And so all those kind of things, and but it was Hiller in the minor leagues that really gave him the the lessons and the foundation for what he wanted to do. And there's a real poignant kind of part in the book where he talks about he wishes uh, he could have that, that Chuck Hiller could have lived long enough to see Gibby coach in the minor leagues, or sorry, in the major leagues. Okay. He 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 lived almost long enough, but uh, Gibby took over that fall with the Blue Jays, and uh, and Hiller just died just before that. Well, and what what did Taylor teach uh, Gibbons that Gibbons applied to his managerial experience? Can you give like an example or two? Well, the main and Gibby talked about this a lot is like you can't treat your stars any differently than your regular players. 
Yeah, they're going to get some def, you know, different treatment, but a lot of that's got to come from management, not from the manager. Because if the manager's going to, you know, you know, baby uh, Daryl Strawberry, and there's some examples of that in there, how he was treated differently by Hiller, yeah. and then later on in the minors, he became much more of a loafer. So those kind of ideas um, stuck with Gibby. And, and so when he gets to the Blue Jays and he's got some hotheads like a Jose Batista and a, and a Josh Donaldson, he talks as fondly about them as he does the role players. And that was a big part of our book is we made sure to try to celebrate some of those lesser lights, right? It's not just yeah. about your stars. It's about the glue guys that, that really help a team that can step in there in a, in a whatever role it may be. And with Gibby, he talked about Rusty Staub and what, what a part of those 84, 85, 86 Mets he was, even though he just walked in out of nowhere at the end of the game as a pinch hitter. He was still a very valuable part of those teams. Describe Orange. Yeah, yeah, I remember him as a kid. Um, what was John Gibbons' managerial style? Describe it. What 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 was his leader his leadership style? Describe it to our listeners. Well, he's on the top tens of guys getting thrown out. Um, uh, but I'm not sure anybody would say that about them. He would describe himself as certainly being very loyal uh, to his players. He would stand up for his players, uh, whether it was to management or to uh, the umpiring or whatever it was, he tried to be equitable and even to everybody. Uh, I think that probably more than anything um, describes Gibby, but of course he's got that catching background. So we always hear about how catchers have a different perspective mm. on the game. Yeah. And I think Gibby saw a lot of that in him. He thought he knew how to handle pitchers, and I'm sure Blue Jay fans would argue with some of this, <laughs> but that idea, right? He knew how to handle pitchers because he'd been a catcher. He had a lot of empathy for the guys at the end of the bench because that was him. Uh, so he tried to always have those younger guys sort of ready for that position. Uh, and, and that may not be the case, right? When you have your big name stars who become managers, they may not have that same empathy for those lesser lights. Some managers are brilliant chess masters. They know that, like Earl Weaver, they they, they know the strat they know the strategies and all that. More other managers are like motivators and all that. How would you describe Gibby? Was he a chess master or was he more of the motivator? Yeah, oh, somewhere in between, I think. Okay. Um, I don't think he was a motivational guy. I don't think he ever went rah rah, let's go, boys. Um, he was a guy that had a lot of. I used the word empathy earlier, but I think that's true. Like he really encouraged the players to, you know, be friendly with them, to talk to him about problems they may have at home. He tried to, you know, be a person and not just some monstrous, mean old manager like they used to do, like your Casey Stengel days yeah. or your uh, Gene Mock or whatever. Like, that's not even that long ago when you say Gene Mock. But that yeah. kind of idea, right? It was a different era. You had a distance from the players to the manager, whereas Gibby was one of the boys in some ways, and yet he also knew he had to make the tough calls and, and respected that. Now, he led the Blue Jays to two ALCS appearances in the 2010s. What, what, are your main, what, were, what, what is the main thrust of those two appearances? How did he put it all together? Well, that was part of the fun. As, as a baseball fan myself, and certainly those days with the Jays were pretty exciting to be a part of. It was fun to hear some of those stories. It was great to talk to like a Josh Donaldson who wrote the forward, uh, which I helped him a little bit with. So all those kind of things add up. And those teams are so fondly remembered. Even though the Jays have made the playoffs two of the last three years, yeah. they never went anywhere. Uh, At least those teams went to the semis and, well, you know, the ACLS as we would call them. And um, 
they had such potential. There's such what ifs involved with them and such big personalities involved in the team as well. Uh, so that with Gibby, when we explored those chapters, we tried to look at the whole season, but also the playoffs specifically, what went right, what went wrong. Uh, there's the Batista bat flip and his take on it, which of course he didn't see because he was doing something else. Then there's the brawl the next year with the Rangers uh, where, where Ordor hits you know, Batista. Like all those kind of things, they're, they're so intertwined, those two separate seasons. But as a baseball fan in Toronto, you knew things were going to get shaken up because during that second season, the 2016 season, they hired Mike Shapar- Mark Shapiro mm. to manage to be the president, and you knew a shakeup was coming. And so that's one of the most fascinating things about the book to me was Gibby talking about being a lame duck manager. Mm. It's like you know the change is coming. What can I do about it? Nothing. I may as well just roll with it. He was appreciative they gave him a second contract, but he also knew he was not going to be there now. Why is it that Gibby hasn't returned to Major League Managing? Anything holding him back? What, what, what's the story on that? That's a really good question. Well, um, the pandemic didn't help. Mm. A lot of teams really sort of stayed pat. He was, uh, um, during the pandemic, he was a scout for the Braves. And in the last couple of years, he's no longer doing that. But that was by choice. Um, so I think there were maybe opportunities. He could have a couple, a couple of minor league ones. But again, he had a decent severance from the Jays. You could sit at home and really think about what you wanted to do. Uh, the the little, you know, olive branch that he got from Alex Anthopoulos at, uh, in, in Atlanta gave him a couple of years to get a couple more salary and a little bit more pension. And now we got to the point where the pandemic was there. He was a little bit bored with scouting. We did the book. Uh, he's now doing a podcast, which mm. is, you know, amazingly successful up here in Canada. It hasn't really penetrated in the U.S. a lot yet which I think is, is a bit of a sleeper. For, if you're a baseball fan, I think anybody's going to love the Gibby show, which he does with John Arezzi. He gets A-list guests like Donaldson and Ooh. Batista. He's coming up next week. I don't even know if I can even tell people, but he's going to have Blue Jays manager John Schneider on the show Ooh. before the season starts. Like These are A-list guests. Yeah, yeah. And uh, he's a good, good at conversation with the people on the podcast. Uh, and, and he's been in loving being on Twitter and interacting with people and showing people, oh, here I am in Alaska or here I am finding a Tim Hortons in you know Ottawa or whatever it is. He's, he's definitely a people person. I think that came through when he was managing too. And I think that's really what Jay's fans in particular remember about him is that he was a people person. He felt like you could sit down and have a beer with him. And I hope that's what comes across in the... Uh, in the book, though we we only ever drank one beer when I was at his place. Uh, it was a Rush beer I brought down for him, uh, a special brand because I knew he liked Rush. Uh, so we shared one of those. Uh, usually he was more of a wine drinker for sure. Mm-hmm. Greg, please tell our listeners, where can they find your books? Well, yeah, we only barely scratched the surface, but I appreciate that, Matthew. So um, oliverbooks.ca is my personal website. Uh, I run slamwrestling.net, uh, which is all the wrestling things. Uh, Medusa's got a website, medusa.com. Uh, Gibby doesn't have a website, but if you, you Google Gibby, Tales of a Baseball Lifer, they're available on all the different Amazons. But the most important thing, and I really encourage people, if you have a local bookstore, go to your local bookstore, ask for the book. They'll order it for you. They might order a couple more from the same author or the same publisher, and it really helps those local bookstores stay in person because Amazon, they don't really need our money. Those local bookstores do. 
Greg, uh, what do you see will be your next book project or projects since you like to do multiple projects? What do you see in the future? Uh, insanity. Um, I, I, you know what? I've got one I'm working on. I can't really talk a lot about now, but it's non-sports, Ooh. Uh, which makes a nice challenge for me. Because if you sit on your laurels and do the same thing over and over again, uh, I don't really feel that challenge. Uh, so to me, I'm always looking for the next project. What's going to be different? What's going to be... What's going to challenge me as a writer to get better and as a person, right? Because then you learn about something other than, you know, my 35 years covering pro wrestling. So you want to do something else interesting. Um, okay, non-sports, can you, without giving the game away, can you give me like a little glimmer? Or like what's, what would be the topic be? Uh, if, can you it's give not me... even a celebrity. It's just somebody wanted to tell their life story. It's fascinating. Uh, and I really have enjoyed talking with her. And it's going to be a neat story. We don't have a publisher yet. It's like very early stages politician uh, of public no, figure no, nobody would know her oh okay when do you envision the book coming out greg no idea i guess we're, we're, we're working on it right now well when it does come out greg please let me know i love i love to have you on the show again please absolutely well it's been a pleasure matthew greg you take care may god bless and keep you always in safe travels thank you sir you're welcome okay bye-bye Stay tuned, ladies and gentlemen, for my next show where I will be interviewing sports author David Sumner. Thank you and good night.